Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're talking about a 28-year-old woman with abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding who presents to an emergency department. We'll be going over the differential for this patient and some of the management of this emergent gynecologic case. You can tweet at me at KateMerriweather1, at K-A-T-E-M-E-R-I-W-E-T-H-E-R-1. For those of you who are following along in the book, this is case 36 on page 259 of Obstetrics and Gynecology Morning Report Beyond the Pearls. This case was written by Drs. Tracy Ito and Dr. Shan Bissett at the University of Louisville. So let's go to our patient. This is a 28-year-old G3P0020 woman who presents the emergency department with intermittent vaginal bleeding and mild colicky right lower quadrant abdominal pain for two days. Her last menses was approximately six weeks ago, although her menses are typically, quote, irregular. She has no significant medical or surgical history except a history of chlamydia diagnosed and treated four years ago. Her past pregnancies resulted in first trimester miscarriages, but she has had positive home pregnancy test that was yesterday. So what is your differential diagnosis for this patient? Abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding are often really nonspecific and can be seen in cases of spontaneous abortion, appendicitis, pelvic inflammatory disease or PID, ovarian torsion, ruptured ovarian cysts, or normal or abnormal pregnancies. The finding of a positive urine pregnancy test suggests that the most likely diagnosis is a pregnancy of some location, and further evaluation is needed to rule out serious complications of an early pregnancy. Little clinical pearl. Evaluation of any reproductive age woman with symptoms of abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding should include a thorough history and physical exam, as well as a prompt pregnancy test. Don't ever forget to do the pregnancy test. The history should review menstrual pattern, previous sexual transmitted infections or STIs, contraceptive use and obstetric history, including any ectopic pregnancies or assisted reproductive technology, ART use. The physical exam should include vital signs and circulatory exam to assess hemodynamic stability and abdominal and pelvic exams to assess for location of the pain. We want to evaluate also the source and volume of the bleeding from the vagina and obtain any pertinent vaginal tests such as cervical cultures. So what's your next step in evaluation of this particular patient? Of course, you're going to do a transvaginal ultrasound or a TVUS and blood tests will be indicated as well. The blood tests that are indicated include a complete blood count, a CBC, to evaluate for anemia, and that should result from interabdominal bleeding if it was severe, such as if the patient had a bleeding ovarian cyst like a corpus luteum or an ectopic pregnancy that was bleeding in the abdomen, you would be able to pick that up uh, in the resulting anemia. The patient also should have a blood type and screen done to ensure if she is pregnant that she's not rhesus D or RHD antigen negative and not therefore at risk for isoimmunization disease. So we do this workup and the patient's abdominal exam shows a soft abdomen with tenderness in the left lower quadrant without guarding or rebound. Her pelvic exam shows a mobile, non-tender uterus without palpable adnexal masses and she has 10 milliliters of dark red blood in the vaginal vault and a normal cervix. Her blood type is ARH negative, B human Chorionic gonadotropin, or beta-CHG, is 1,000 
milli IU per milliliter. White blood cell count is 11 times 10 to the 9th cells per liter. Hemoglobin is 11 grams per deciliter. Hematocrit is 33%. And platelets are 210,000 per MCL. The transvaginal ultrasound shows an irregular fluid collection within the uterine cavity, no fetal pole or yolk sac, and normal adnaxial structures. So based on these findings, what diagnoses are possible or likely now? The triad of amenorrhea, not having periods, irregular vaginal bleeding, and abdominal pain can occur in normal pregnancy, but it can also be an abnormal pregnancy such as spontaneous abortion or ectopic pregnancies. TVUS and beta-HCG may not be diagnostic on initial testing, so it's really important to be complete, repeat testing, and look for trends. For example, an ectopic pregnancy usually cannot be diagnosed by transvaginal ultrasound alone on the initial evaluation unless there's clearly a gestational sac within a yolk sac and an embryo. It's clearly seen outside the uterus. So that would be diagnostic for an ectopic pregnancy. Ultrasound findings have to be correlated to physical exam findings and the beta-HCG levels. So now a clinical pearl. Risk factors for ectopic pregnancy or intra-abdominal or non-intrauterine location include prior ectopic pregnancy, previous gonorrheal or chlamydial cervical infection or pelvic inflammatory disease, which this patient does have, previous tubal surgery, current use of an intrauterine device, assisted reproductive technologies or ART, and cigarette smoking. So what findings are suggestive of normal intrauterine pregnancy or an IUP or an ectopic pregnancy and ultrasound. We want to distinguish in this patient between the two. An IUP develops between the endometrial layers and creates what we call a double sac sign seen early as five weeks gestation, four in some cases. There's a double echogenic ring that surrounds a hypoechoic center. Now, note that I'm describing things in echogenicity because we're talking about findings on ultrasound or ultrasound done through the vagina specifically. By contrast, a pseudosac seen within the uterus in some ectopic pregnancies has irregular borders and no, quote, double sac sign. Other transvaginal ultrasound signs that are suggestive of an ectopic pregnancy include an extrauterine gestational sac with or without a yolk sac or an embryo, fetal cardiac activity outside the uterus, and presence of an adnexal mass with hyperechoic ring that illuminates on Doppler flow studies, called, quote, a ring of fire because it lights up during Doppler studies on ultrasound. Also, free fluid in the abdominal cavity might suggest ectopic bleeding into the abdominal cavity. In the book, it refers to a figure 36.1, where it shows you the contrast between subfigure A, which is an intrauterine double sac sign, and a pseudosac that's irregular, has no embryo or gestational sac, and shows an extrauterine pregnancy with that ring of fire. So what physical exam findings would be concerning for an ectopic pregnancy? In a patient with a stable ectopic pregnancy, abdominal pain can be generalized, unilateral, or bilateral. Additional signs such as cervical motion tenderness, sometimes called CMT, a palpable adnexal mass or rebound tenderness may or may not be present. Ruptured ectopic pregnancies may demonstrate peritoneal signs of intra-abdominal hemorrhage. That would be like rebound, guarding on abdominal exam. And of course, you want to be looking for signs of shock, such as hypotensin or tachycardia. This patient has a lower beta HCG level, and her physical exam and transvaginal ultrasound findings aren't consistent with an acute emergency. So it's appropriate for this patient to have a follow-up in 48 hours for a repeat beta HCG level and a repeat ultrasound. If her pregnancy is normal, her beta-HCG should double in 48 hours, 
whereas a beta HCG increase of less than 53% in 48 hours, I'm going to say it again, a beta HCG increase of less than 53% in 48 hours is diagnostic of an abnormal pregnancy, a pregnancy that is of unknown location, but isn't growing normally and isn't going to develop into a normal fetus. Before the patient leaves the emergency room, you administer Rho D immune globulin due to her RHD negative status and first trimester bleeding. Always a good idea. The patient returns to the office for a follow-up beta HCG and a TVUS two days later, and her beta HCG is now 1800 MIU per milliliter. Repeat ultrasound reveals an empty uterus, unfortunately, and a 1.4 centimeter adnexal cystic structure without a gestational sac. Her pain is unchanged since her last visit and her vaginal bleeding has lessened to intermittent spotting. So a little basic science pearl about ROD antigens. RHD antigens on blood cells are an autosomal recessive trait. So women who are RHD negative have no genetic copies for RHD antigens. Therefore, they have serum antibodies to RHD and are at risk of developing antibodies when exposed to RHD positive fetal red blood cells, a process called isoimmunization. Fetal cells may have RH antigens if the father of the baby is RHD positive, which most people are. Future pregnancies with RHD positive fetuses of isoimmunized women, so not the pregnancy that immunized them, but future pregnancies after that, particularly with the same partner, who presumably is RHD positive, may result in those fetuses having their erythrocytes lysed by maternal antibodies that have developed to RHD, causing hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn. Rhodi immune gobium, RHD antibodies that can bind fetal blood cell antigens in the maternal blood and prevent isoimmunization, is given in any circumstance where the mother might be exposed to fetal genetic material, including, in this case, ectopic pregnancy. So why, going back to our patient, are these findings concerning for pregnancy of abnormal location? The discriminatory zone for beta-HCG is between 1,500 and 2,000 MIU per milliliter. Now, what do I mean by discriminatory zone? What I mean is that at that level, we should be able to see a clear intrauterine pregnancy or a gestational sac within the uterus. So that's a reliable marker for when an intrauterine gestational sac should be in the uterus, and we don't see one in this patient. Therefore, when a beta HCG exceeds these levels and an IUP isn't seen, like in this patient, it's highly suggestive of an ectopic pregnancy. So we go back to the patient and we discuss our concerns that the pregnancy is an ectopic and discuss treatment options for the patient. However, she states this is a desired pregnancy and prefers to wait and see as her bleeding has improved. So what are your concerns about observing this patient further? Any patient in whom you suspect a pregnancy of abnormal location should be counseled on the risk of ectopic rupture and intra-abdominal bleeding. She should be counseled that the ectopic pregnancies can cause severe blood loss, shock, and death that can occur minutes to hours after the onset of bleeding, make it of imperative that she's close to emergency care so she could get emergent surgery and cessation of the bleeding. A clinical pearl. Ectopic pregnancies can be in a lot of different locations. They can be in the cervix, the ovary, the abdominal cavity, the cornua of the uterus, or a previous cesarean section scar. However, 97% of ectopic pregnancies implant in the fallopian tube, making that the most common site for an ectopic. So let's go back to this patient now. She decides to be scheduled for follow-up in 48 hours, and you strongly advise her to return urgently to the emergency room if any symptoms such as worsening pain, syncope, or weakness occur. So is medical management an option for this patient? There are several questions that have to be answered prior to you considering the use of medical management, most commonly methotrexate or MTX, 
as an option for treatment of a suspected ectopic pregnancy. MTX is a folid acid antagonist. Specifically, it inactivates dihydrofolate reductase, and it thereby prevents the, the production of hydrofolate from the precursor dihydrofolic acid. The patient in this scenario is hemodynamically stable, and there's no evidence of an intrauterine pregnancy. Both factors allow the use of MTX. Of note, you wouldn't want to use MTX in a normal intrauterine pregnancy because then you would interrupt the growth of that pregnancy. In addition to the beta-HCG type and screen and CBC this patient had earlier, a complete metabolic panel is needed to evaluate hepatic and renal function if we're thinking of using MTX. If there's no evidence of hepatic or renal dysfunction, history of sensitivity to MTX, pulmonary disease, peptic ulcer disease, immunodeficiency, or residual concern that a normal pregnancy might be going on, MTX can be considered. There are features about the pregnancy based on size and appearance on TVOH that diminish the success of MTX and therefore would be relative contraindications if they were present. MTX is a good option for this patient if she's willing and had normal laboratory findings. So now we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about relative and absolute contraindications to using methotrexate in the medical treatment of ectopic pregnancy. Absolute contraindications are the following an intrauterine pregnancy, right, because it would interrupt that if desired, hemodynamically unstable patient, hepatic or renal deficiency, sensitivity to MTX, immunodeficiency, pulmonary disease, peptic ulcer disease, or someone who's breastfeeding currently. So let's go back to our patient. She returns, unfortunately, to the emergency department five days later with sudden onset of severe abdominal pain, a constant urge to defecate, dizziness with ambulation. Her blood pressure is 105 over 78, her heart rate's gone up to 112 a minute, her respiratory rate is 19 per minute, and oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Her physical exam is significant for tenderness of the lower right side of her abdomen, accompanied by rebound and garbing. Now you've got these peritoneal signs, so you're suspecting intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Her labs reveal a beta-HCG of 2,400 MIU per milliliter, hemoglobin of 8 grams per deciliter, so a significant drop, and a hematocrit of 24%, also a significant drop. She's bleeding somewhere. TVUS shows an empty uterus, just as before, a complex right adnexal mass measuring 3 centimeters, and moderate free fluid in the pelvis. And by free fluid, I mean it's outside of any viscous organ. So what is the patient's diagnosis? This patient now has a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, which is a surgical emergency. Given the risk for hemorrhagic shock and death, prompt surgical evaluation and control of bleeding is indicated, along with readiness for fluid resuscitation and blood transfusion as indicated. Laparoscopy or laparotomy may be performed as the surgical approach. Laparoscopy is preferred if the ectopic pregnancy is unruptured, and it's sometimes feasible even in ruptured pregnancies if the bleeding is not too extensive. Laparotomy should be used if the surgeon is not comfortable with the laparoscopic approach, the patient is hemodynamically unstable, or if good visualization isn't possible during laparoscopy. Some surgeons, of note, will even put in the camera and look inside to see if laparoscopy is feasible, possible, and the belly can be uh, distended. Surgery can include a salpingectomy, removal of the fallopian tube, or a salpingostomy, opening of the tube with removal of the pregnancy tissue inside, which allows for tubal preservation if the ectopic is in fact in the fallopian tube. A little bit of a clinical pearl when it comes to operating on ectopic pregnancies. Sometimes when people are attempting to do laparoscopy for ectopic pregnancies, 
The irritation of the anterior abdominal wall from the bleeding inside the abdomen has made the anterior abdominal wall stiff, so you may have difficulty distending the abdomen. That's why I noted prior that some surgeons will put in the laparoscope, inflate the belly with carbon dioxide, and see if adequate inflation and visualization can take place despite the blood and the irritation to the anterior abdominal wall. If it's not possible, you do a laparotomy. So this patient, is she has a surgical emergency, undergoes an emergent laparoscopic procedure with a right salpingectomy and evacuation of the hemoperitoneum. She receives two units of packed red blood cells due to symptomatic anemia, and a postoperative hemoglobin has six gram per deciliter. She's discharged on postoperative day one. At her follow-up visit 10 days later, she has no complaints. So how would you counsel this same patient with one former ectopic pregnancy now and a uterodural salpingectomy about any future pregnancies she might have. The patient should really not have any negative effect on her ability to become pregnant in the future because you're just as fertile with one fallopian tube as you are with two, almost, provided that her ovaries and the remaining tube are normal in function. However, the rate of ectopic pregnancy after a single ectopic pregnancy is 20%, with a range of 8 to 72%, so a wide range. Therefore, women with a history of ectopic pregnancies should have early monitoring with pelvic ultrasound in any subsequent pregnancies. So you counsel the patient if you have a positive home pregnancy test or are told by a doctor that you're pregnant in the future, get an early ultrasound to determine where that pregnancy is located. So now let's go beyond the pearls. Interstitial pregnancy, commonly referred to as a Cornwall pregnancy, accounts for up to 2.5% of ectopic pregnancies. These pregnancies occur in the proximal segment of the fallopian tube within the wall of the uterus, so it's the intramural portion of the fallopian tube. They present as ruptured ectopic pregnancies in 20 to 50% of cases due to often being delayed in diagnosis because of the odd location of the pregnancy. Of note, they often fool ultrasounds because they look like they're intrauterine in location, but they're actually not. Ovarian pregnancies account for 0.5 to 3% of ectopic pregnancies. For a pregnancy to be considered a true ovarian pregnancy, four Spiegelberg's criteria must be met. One, the gestational sac is in the region of the ovary. Two, the pregnancy is attached to the uterus by the ovarian ligament. Three, ovarian tissue is histologically demonstrated in the walls of the gestational sac. And four, the tube is on the involved side is intact, so the fallopian tube is not abnormal. A heterotopic pregnancy is defined as a combined intrauterine and extrauterine pregnancy and has an incident of 1 in 4,000 pregnancies in the general population. The incidence is increased to 1%, though, in women who have undergone in vitro fertilization prior to the pregnancy that they're presenting with. In a woman who desires future fertility, salpingostomy is the preferred surgical method in unruptured tubal ectopic pregnancies. However, studies have showed that similar intrauterine pregnancy rates follow salpingostomy versus salpingectomy, and the preserved fallopian tube is at increased risk of forming a future ectopic pregnancy. So this has to be discussed with a woman prior to doing the surgery if possible. Of note, if she's unstable or it's an emergency, you may not have time to do that. Let's go back to a case summary. A 28-year-old woman presented to us with abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding. Initial serum beta-HCG is 1,000 MIU per milliliter, and pelvic ultrasound indicates a pregnancy of unknown location. Rho D immune globulin was given for prophylaxis due to RHD negative status in the woman. Follow-up evaluation two days later shows a beta-HCG of 1,800 MAU per ml, and TVS shows an empty uterus with an adnexal mass, really suspicious for ectopic pregnancy. The patient declines treatment at this time. The patient then presented to the emergency room five days later with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. 
An emergent laparoscopic right salpingectomy is performed and the patient is given blood products and she recovers well. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.